0: I'm Ken Hemmings and he is Chris Lang and welcome to another of these regular property briefings. Again, a warm welcome to you, Chris. It's uh, good to be back with you, Ken. We should probably take this opportunity to wish our listeners a Happy New Year. And I think also a prosperous one as well. So far on these podcasts, you've covered the key steps involved for our listeners to be successful when investing in commercial property. However, we haven't really looked at why you choose commercial over residential property in the first place. So I wonder if you'd care to explore that a little in this first podcast for 2014. Well,
1: that's probably a good idea, Ken, because as I've probably gathered from some of the comments and feedback from our listeners a number of them have been making the transition from residential to commercial and so it's probably a fair question to distinguish between the two and what what are some of the pluses and minuses between a residential investment and a commercial investment and it's a question that I guess residential investors often ask. And once they take the step into commercial property, I think they quickly find there are several reasons why they have made the change and why they want to stay with commercial property. Probably number one is the fact that you have longer leases. Now, as I think you already know, that With residential tenancies, more often than not, they are on a month-to-month basis. Sometimes they're six months. If you're lucky, they'll be for a 12-month period. Whereas with commercial properties, the leases tend to be somewhere between three to five years, and with larger properties and more established tenants, they can quite often be longer. With some major public companies, they're quite happy to sign leases up to 15 or 20 years. But for the sort of properties that our listeners will be looking at, you're in the three to five-year range. Now, what that means is that you have a far more predictable income stream, but equally as important that you have fewer tenancy changes. And as you know, a residential property... After a while, when the tenancy changes take place, you end up having to replace carpet and give it a paint and you certainly have to... Tenants never really clean it properly. I mean, they they clean it to the point where they don't put their bond at jeopardy, but it's never clean enough if you're a caring landlord for the next person to go in. So you always have to expend some money at the end of each tenancy. So when the tenants... Stretch their leases over a three to five year period, you don't have that continual changeover. And also, with commercial tenants, they are required to make good at the end. Now, your second benefit is with greater security. Now, most people understand that when a residential tenant exits part way through a lease, They're simply required to find a suitable replacement tenant. And once they do that, they can then transfer the lease across to that person. Now, they need permission from the landlord, obviously, but it's not difficult to do and you can't, as a landlord, object to that. Now, from that point onwards, the new tenant becomes responsible for the rent for the remainder of the lease term. Now you say, well, that's fine, I understand it. However, with commercial property, the tenants are running a business in your property and when they transfer the lease, either through selling the business or simply outgrowing the property and having to find a substitute tenant, they are required to gain your approval to assign the lease to the incoming tenant. Now there are strict reference guidelines going through there, credit checks and so forth that uh, you're entitled to run. But here's the big difference. If the new commercial tenant defaults in paying their rental or any other payments required under the lease, you also have recourse to the previous tenant as well. And that's for the remaining period of the lease. And that's because commercial leases are business contracts enforceable by law. And so you can have on the hook two parties, the new one and the old one, for the remainder of the period of the lease. And then if the during that time had a a reasonable period in which to gauge the capability of the new tenant, and if they are not in default of the lease, you can then allow them to exercise their option. Now, while the option, as most people think, is is only the tenant's way, yes, they choose whether or not to exercise it. However, if they choose to exercise it and are in default under the lease, you can refuse to grant them that option period. So you've had that period with the new tenant in place over the remainder of the lease, and generally, as I said, it's over a three- to five-year period. So you at least have one, maybe two years to... Judge the calibre of the new tenant, but you have the security if they default to have recourse to the previous tenant from whom the assignment has taken place. The third benefit of a commercial lease or commercial investment is that commercial tenants pay the outgoings. Now typically your residential properties will provide you with a 5% gross rental return. Now, from this, you need to pay the rates and taxes, the insurance, the maintenance, and so on. And that leaves you with about a 3 to 3.5% net return at the end of the year, if you're lucky. Now, depending on what and where the commercial properties are located, your net return will be 5%. To nine percent per annum. So, that, as I said, depends on the type of property and where it is. So that's the return, but it that's the return after the outgoings, because the tenants under a commercial lease are required to pay the outgoings. Now, the only exception is with a retail lease, they can't pay the single holding land tax, but in all other respects, they pay your rates, your maintenance, your insurance, and all the other outgoings or occupancy costs for the tenancy. And therefore, you end up with a a net figure. And so at the end of each month, you can bank and spend the figure you receive rather than having to wait till the end of the year when you're not too sure exactly what the bottom line is because you still have bills to pay.
0: Tell me, how do commercial tenants differ from your typical residential tenant?
1: Well, as you know, commercial tenants operate a business from their tenancy. And whereas with a residential apartment or a house, if the toilet stops working or gets blocked, the tenant simply asks you to send around a plumber or the managing agent to send around a plumber. Whereas with a commercial tenant, they will quickly attend to, and that means pay to fix those sort of problems themselves, not only are they required to do so under the lease but also so as to not disrupt their business. I mean the last thing they want is that the toilet not to be working, assuming they have the the whole floor or the whole property there if the toilets not working, some of their staff are going to be disadvantaged, whether it's the male or female toilet, one half of the staff are going to be disadvantaged now, furthermore. The overall appearance of the property becomes a reflection on their corporate image. And as such, the property you'll find for commercial tenants is generally kept in a good condition and at their expense. Now, if you have multiple tenants in the property, the external painting or or upkeep may well be an expense that you have to contribute to. But then again, It could be part of budgeted outgoings where there is a program to maintain the garden and the external appearance of the property and maintain the the roof and so forth. And therefore, the tenants pay a contribution each month based on what the expectation for the year is. But they're keen to do that because they want the property to look in schmick condition because that reflects upon them when their clients arrive to to visit them so therefore whether the lease requires it or not you'll find most commercial tenants will regularly repair and repaint the property in order to maintain a good corporate image so they're improving your asset at their expense and that is where your typical residential tenant and commercial tenant differ or there's another way too, and that is we, we talked about security, but we talk about payment certainty as well because with residential properties, they're generally rented to individuals and therefore the rent is more often than not paid in cash or by personal cheque. And this can vary of the, the timing as to when payday is or how they're feeling or what other personal expenses they've got. But with a commercial tenant, because they're running a business, rent is considered as simply another regular expense each month. And generally, this gets set up by way of an automatic bank transfer. And most leases now have the provision in there for you to require that. And that means that you get paid on the same day every month. And normally that's the first of the month, but it can be set for, for other dates. So, Again, you have that certainty and frequency that you know about. So really, as a residential investor, you find yourself having to deal with the vagaries of individual people. However, as a commercial investor, you enjoy a far more predictable, long-term relationship with your tenants based on a proper business footing. And I think when you take all of it into consideration... I think you'll agree
0: that's a far better arrangement to have. (laughs) Fascinating stuff. And I imagine there would also be a number of fundamental considerations our listeners should keep in mind going forward. Look, let's start with some of the do's they should follow.
1: Well, as I'm sure you realise, all investments, whether it's shares or property or whatever, carry some risk. Now, for property... Your three potential pitfalls are overborrowing, making a poor assessment of the marketplace at the time you purchase and buying properties with what we'll call fragile tenants. In other words, when you do your due diligence, you don't realise or don't do it properly to get behind the substance of the tenant that you're purchasing. So what's important in all of this is to stay just below what we affectionately call your threshold of insomnia and that's the point where you start to lose sleep and perhaps it's through overborrowing or maybe keeping making a poor assessment of the market but however to give you a hand here are a few things that you ought look at and they've more or less stood the test of time And these are things that you you really need to do as an investor. Now, the first one is maintain enough cash reserves. And nothing cures investment insomnia faster than having enough cash to meet any planned or, for that matter, unplanned obligations that you might have. I mean, no investor wants surprises. So invariably, I'll say to a lot of my clients is to... When you settle a property and you organise your loan funds, generally put aside into a cash management fund a couple of months at least of your mortgage payments, ideally three, your interest on your mortgage payments. And the idea for that is that let's suppose for whatever reason, it might be quite legitimate, the tenant financial controller is ill, and for whatever reason, the payment doesn't go through, what happens over Christmas, New Year, or whatever. Well, there's not the mad panic to meet your next monthly interest payment. You've got that. And then for whatever reason, it it might take two months. But I always like to have a coverage of three. Probably won't need it, but this certainly helps you have a lot more confidence and, as I said, sleep at night. And this covers even... Some of the smaller items, you know, like equipment breakdown or things like that, where initially you might have to outlay it. Sure, you might be able to recoup it from the tenant, but the last thing you want to do is not have funds in hand sufficient at the time to, to rectify any issues that might arise from time to time. The second do, if you like, is to make and maintain an investment plan which you feel comfortable with, and then to stick to it. And we've discussed this before, but you need to have your clear investment objectives and your buying criteria. And if you haven't done that, it's worth going back to one of the earlier episodes, and that explains the importance of setting those and, and what they are. And as you know, I've put together now uh, an app which you can download from the App Store called high return filter which enables you and there's no cost for that it's purely uh, complementary enables you to quickly assess properties taking into account the investment objectives and buying criteria. Now, the third do is to have either a good financial calculator or a software program and learn how to use it properly and this is for analysing properties. Now part of the mentor program I've I provide some very user-friendly software called Final Judgment, and uh, that works very well. But there are others on the market, and so long as you've got one to do the financial analysis, that's important. Fourthly, you need to keep up your pursuit of knowledge. And that involves attending seminars, staying up to date with current trends, plus monitoring the news and the legislation affecting real estate. Knowledge always minimises your risks and maximises your profits. And I think we've discussed it before. If you don't have a managing agent, this is something you've got to do yourself. If you do have a managing agent, generally they're abreast of all these latest developments, whether it's, it's legislation or planning changes or whatever, and you can simply ask them to forward to you things as and when they arise so that you can keep up to date. They will be up to date, but it's good for you to be up to date as well. Fifthly, you should retain, and retain means pay fees to, top consultants. I mean, the money you pay to them will be more than returned to you in the deals they'll pull off for you. I mean, this is deals that you might find. It might be deals that they come across, if they know you're in the market for something and they see it, quite often, uh, whether it's your your building consultant or your, your property advisor or even your lawyer may come across something and if they know you've retained them to look after your interest, they'll start to suddenly feed stuff back to you. The sixth do would be to avoid personal guarantees on mortgages wherever possible. Now, you try to make the property the sole security, and that's what's known as non-recourse finance, where the property stands alone as the security and you don't have to provide personal guarantees. Now, that may restrict your borrowing to 65%, but if that gives you the added peace of mind, it's really worth considering. And uh, finally, on the do side, you really need to limit the amount of funds, you invest in what might be considered speculative investments. I mean, they may appear glamorous on the way in, but they're often very painful on the way out. So hopefully those do's will hold you in good stead. Now,
0: how about some of the don'ts?
1: Hmm. Well, there are probably four or five things that I think you should really steer away from. The first one I would say is don't make your deals based on a handshake. Put them in writing. In my negotiating course, I make that point very clear that, and sometimes what you need to do is is it might be as simple as at the end of the meeting simply say, look, why don't we just make a heads of agreement here, just by hand, jot down the points of a commercial terms of the deal and spin it around and, and initial it. or take a photocopy if you're in an office and say, look, uh, I'll initial this, you initial that, and then we both know what we've agreed. And you can often say, look, that way I can give it to my solicitor or you can give it to your solicitor to prepare the formal documentation. You see, if you wait till the formal documentation arrives and the solicitor's got a bit tricksy and put in something that's not there You'll, unless you have an exchange of something in writing, it's very hard to argue what was actually agreed three weeks ago. So that's important. The second point is that you really don't want to go into joint ventures or partnerships without careful consultation with your retained in advisors. And I won't elaborate on that, but it's sometimes You can get emotionally attached to a property and you, I'm going to say, emotionally attached attached to a partner or or joint venture partner, but you you get mesmerised by them and everything seems swimming, but you just need someone who's detached from the deal to analyse it and make sure the deal makes sense and then pose some questions to the potential joint venture partners. The third don't would be not to commit the proceeds from the sale of one property, finance another, until they're fully realised. In other words, until settlement has occurred on the property that you're selling. I've seen too many sure deals that have fallen apart and you get exposed, that you end up owning two properties and you get into bridging finance and it just gets out of hand. So, yeah, sure, you can enter into a contract if you want to, but you can. You need to say to the other party it's conditional upon settlement of that on such and such a date. My preference is you better to wait till you've got cash in hand and then you can drive a much stronger bargain. Fourth point would be don't get involved with mortgages where the payments can fluctuate widely and be out of your control. And That's why I mostly say to people to enter into a fixed interest rate loan. Now, yes, it might cost you a quarter of a percent, maybe a third of a percent more, but it's predictable. And generally, you've got your three and a half to four percent annual escalations in the rent. So while the interest is fixed, your rent's increasing, but you can sleep at night. You don't have these surprises. I mean, people forget. I remember we going through a period when when first mortgage interest rates got to eighteen percent. Now most investors say you've got to be joking. Well, it, it wasn't. It, I mean, they they just kept rising. They started this went up over I think a twelve or fifteen month period from about seven or eight percent. They got up to twelve, then fifteen, then up to eighteen percent. Now if you're locked in and if you have a variable interest rate, you're in all sorts of problems. And you know this is when the market crashed and properties dropped 40%, and this is going back into the late 1980s. But this is what you need to avoid. And yes, sure, you can boast, I've got a great interest rate, but if it's not fixed, then you're at the behest of the bank. And finally, you don't want to be acquiring properties that have substantial negative cash flows. Negative gearing's fine, but you've still got to, make sure that you don't expose yourself. So, as I generally say to clients, it's always wise to live within your means and reinvest your profits because it's better to be inconspicuously wealthy
0: than ostentatiously poor. You know, I think that's probably been a very worthwhile start to the year. So I'd just like to thank you for setting the scene. That's a pleasure,
1: Ken. I hope our listeners found it helpful.